Last week, John taught on the Ark of Redemption, and he looked at how the Bible is really one major story about one important man, and that man is Jesus Christ, the God-man. And John tackled various aspects of Christ in the Old Testament through the covenants and so forth. And today, we're going to take, we're going to zero down and we're going to look at just one verse that I hope to tackle. And I hope that it is a big encouragement to you. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. And the title of this message is The Wealth of the Gospel. The Wealth of the Gospel. This is a gem of a verse. I would encourage everybody that is here today, if you do not have this verse memorized, that you go home and you start to meditate on the gospel, which is unveiled in this verse. And Paul uses terminology, uh, terms of wealth, to describe the nature of the work of Jesus Christ. And what's fascinating about this verse is that in the context of chapter 8, Paul is actually going to preach the gospel not to Gentiles or non-believers. He actually preaches the gospel in this verse to the Christians at Corinth. He preaches the gospel to Christians. There's this notion in some churches that the gospel is strictly for evangelism. And we, we give out the gospel like it's a life preserver. And we want to help those that don't know Jesus Christ get saved. But here in this text, we learn that the gospel is for Christians as well. And my theme today, or the main point of today, is this. That the gospel should be the central, most important aspect of our lives as we live it. And Paul uses the gospel as the key motivator for righteous living. For righteous living, the gospel is central to it. Now, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. We've got to get this right. And I got this little section from George Whitfield. And he says this, the good news is the active work of Jesus Christ. That is his life. Of 33 years, Jesus lived that life absolutely perfect, obedient to the law and obedient to the Father. He was holy and without sin. And then when he went to the cross, that was his passive obedience in that what happened on the cross was done to him. He allowed those Jews and those uh, Gentiles to persecute him and then ultimately kill him on the cross. And he was even obedient to the end there. And then we have Jesus' resurrection. So Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that alone should be so fundamental to who we are as Christians. It should be the driver of why we live, why we exist. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel should guide and direct and shape all that we do in the decisions that we make, how our marriages function, how we parent, what we do in our jobs, what we do with entertainment should all be influenced and directed by the gospel. It should be central to who we are. If you were to say, if someone was to ask you, what is John Stead like? I would hope that beyond the, the humor part 
And the dorkiness description of me, that many of you who know me, I, I, I am that way. But I hope that in the description there would be some mention that, oh yes, G he really loves Jesus Christ. He loves what Jesus has done for him. He's given his life for Christ because Christ gave his life to him. I would hope that that would be a mark of everybody in this room, that we are known as people that love the Lord Jesus Christ and love his gospel. Now I'm going to give an illustration here that my, I, I don't mean it to be flippant at all. So I'm thinking in terms of high school and junior hires here. But with the Apostle Paul, the gospel was fundamental and central to all of his ministry. If Paul was a chef, the key ingredient would be the gospel. If Paul, the apostle, was a coach, the key fundamental play in which he would build all of his offense would be the gospel. And we know that Paul was a tent maker. And, and Paul obviously used animal skins or fabric to make his tents. But you know what was woven into the fabric of Paul's life and ministry, which was fundamental to him? It was the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he dedicated his life to preaching and living for. I hope in our marriages, men, that we can daily model the gospel and the nature of Christ's sacrificial love for us and how we sacrifice for our wives. When we are parenting our children, I would hope that the gospel would be woven into how we parent our kids, that we don't parent in such a way that we're trying to teach them to be moralists and they have to perform. And one of the ways that helped me in my parenting, especially as my kids got into the elementary, junior high, and even the high school years, was actually humbling myself as a dad. And when I would lose my temper or sin in front of my whole family, I would go back to my family after the Holy Spirit had pricked my heart about my sin, and I would humble myself before them, and I would say, as I'd sit them down, kids, what your dad did was absolutely sinful. It was wrong, and that's why your dad needs a Savior, needs Christ. And if you practice doing that as a dad, as a strong leader in the home, you will crush moralism. You really will. And you will, you will demonstrate what your students or your children already know, that you're not a perfect person and that you desperately need Christ. And so the gospel should color and shape all that we do, every aspect of our lives. The gospel is central to our serving in the church. It's why we serve. Our service in the church is a response knowing that Jesus has loved me in such a way that he had to die. He absolutely had to die for me because I'm a sinner, but he was willing to because he loved me. And so out of that, I can now serve. I can do difficult things even in the church and do it with joy because of what Jesus has done for me. I stumbled across a passage in Psalm 116, 12 through 14. And the passage says, this is David. He says, how can I repay the Lord? Well, we can't repay the Lord. But he says, how can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? That's an important thing to think about. Man, look what God has done for me. How can I repay him? I think that's a right heart in that. And David says this, I will lift up the cup of salvation. In other words, I will cherish the salvation that he has given me. And then I will proclaim it. I will make it known. And I will call on the name of the Lord. 
And then he says, I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. So there's a response here of David wanting to serve his Lord because of what his Lord has done for him. And that should be our hearts as well. By the way, this is all introduction. I'm sorry, but it's all introduction. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 8, and I'm actually going to tackle the, the first part of this chapter. And I want you to see something amazing. I want you to see how the grace and the goodness of Christ and his gospel affected the way the Macedonian churches gave freely to the church that was poor in Jerusalem. Now, this is all by way of introduction, but this is so good. And we can't skip over it because it's the context. So let's read starting in verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches of Macedonia. So God has poured out grace to three churches, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Those are the churches of Macedonia. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. So these very, very poor people, these very poor churches got together and they were so excited about the gospel and what Jesus has done that they, they came up with a gift that they wanted to send to their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Notice in verse 2 it says, their great ordeal of affliction, and yet they had abundance of joy. They had much affliction, yet they were overflowing with joy. How can that be? And then it says, and in their deep poverty overflowed with the wealth of liberality. How can you have deep poverty and affliction and yet be filled with so much joy and so, and so much uh, uh, happiness that it overflows in wanting to help benefit others. How can that be? Well, the natural man and the outer world that looks into the church, they, they can't figure out how this can be. How could people who are so poor, who are so afflicted, be so happy and have so much joy? Well, it's because they have the gospel. They have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ poured out upon them. And they got together out of their poverty an incredible gift for the church in Jerusalem. This reminds me of uh, some rose bushes I have in my yard. I have been working on these roses that were just absolutely ravished by aphids. And they have a fungus. And they have all sorts of issues. So I've been spraying them with chemicals, probably killing off everything around it just to keep those things healthy. And I even cut them back. And one day, and I mean, these, these roses look like they're going to die. One day, I, I looked outside my front window, and I saw two beautiful blooms of, of these magnificent, gorgeous roses that were yellow on the outside and were kind of pinkish red on the inside. And I was just mesmerized by how could something so beautiful come from plants that were absolutely on their deathbed? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. That's exactly how the world looks at the church when the church has deep-seated joy that no matter what is happening to the church, they still have the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ because their greatest need has been met. And I'm asking myself, Stead, where is the joy? Where is the abundant joy? Where is the overflowing happiness to give to benefit others? 
Verse 3, I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this is not as we expected. Verse 5, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Verse 6, consequently, we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would uh, complete in you the gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in love, we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work. So Paul's now telling the Corinthian church, you need to be like the Macedonian church who were so enthralled with the love of Jesus Christ and the grace of Jesus Christ, and you need to give like they do. But Paul does not command this. Read on. And in the love we inspired you, that you would abound in gracious work also. Verse 8, I am not speaking this as a command. Paul's not going to command that they give. But as proving through the earnestness of others, the sincerity of your love also. He calls the Corinthians, he says, remember the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done in your life and in this church. And now he preaches the gospel in one of my favorite verses Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. You see, the gospel is for Christians as well. The gospel is not just the life preserver that we throw out to the non-believers that need to come to faith. No, the gospel is also the boat that we ride in that sustains us and sustains our lives. The gospel is central to what we are as Christians and who we are. So I want to tackle very quickly this verse. I'm going to go through it exegetically. This is the meat of the sermon. I hope you have not fallen asleep. I want you to wake up. I want you to get this. And I want you to walk out of here so thankful for Christ's willingness to become poor so that you can become rich. And I'm not talking about material riches. I'm talking about spiritual riches here. That's what Paul is talking about. So here we go. That's number one, the riches of Christ. The riches of Christ. Paul says to the Corinthian church, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason why you can give freely and give much is because you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word know there is a word of intimacy. The Corinthian church had been moved and impacted by the gospel and they knew it personally. It wasn't an intellectual knowledge. They had experienced it as well. And many of them have become followers of Jesus Christ. You know, one author said, it's one thing to know that sugar is sweet. It's another thing to taste it and have your taste buds stimulated. And that's what's happening with the Corinthian church. You've been stimulated by the Holy Spirit. You've had the work of the Holy Spirit in this church. And God has worked mightily here. And you know that grace, so spread that grace outward. The word grace there is the word charis, which means to be generous. It has the idea of benefiting others. It also means that uh, means divine favor. The, the God of the universe just favors you. And it's an unmerited favor of God. He just chooses to love us. There's nothing we do to earn that favor. There's nothing we can do. And it's best described, that word is best described as gift. 
If you are sharing with your non-Christian family members or friends, the best way you can describe uh, Christianity is not a religion, but as a gift that is given to us that we cannot earn. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no man should boast. One of my students gave me this acrostic for the word grace. And it goes like this. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. His grace, which he lavishes upon us. And Paul is reminding the Corinthian church, remember because you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the name that's given there, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord there means master. Jesus means savior of his people. And then the word Christ means Messiah. So Paul in that statement is, is saying, remember the master, remember the savior, remember the Messiah. He is the one who bestowed grace upon you. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, though he was rich, how rich is God? How rich is he? Well, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe. Colossians chapter 1. For by him all things were created. Through him and for him. John 1 talks about Jesus as the creator. So Jesus owns the universe. He created it. Psalm 24 verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. And the world and those who dwell in it. The earth is the Lord's. All of this is his. Isaiah 66, 1. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. The earth is my footstool. Now, some who are flat earthers believe that this is a, is a, a word that they could use to help their case. But if you look at the Hebrew, the word footstool actually means in the Hebrew, it means giant orb that helps massage your feet. Okay, so they're totally wrong there. Uh, it's a giant orb, that footstool. I'm just kidding, I made that up. That's, sorry, take that off the video, John. I, I apologize. But God owns the universe. He owns all that is in it. So there's a couple forms of riches. I won't tackle them all, but I'll just throw them at you rapid fire. He is God. He created all things. He owns all things. He's above all things. He's separated from all things. Also, he is rich in worship. All creation exists to bring him glory, to worship him. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day and night they pour forth speech. Creation is just screaming the glory of God. We also have his creation in angels. Isaiah 6, where they fly around him. The seraphim crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then we have man who was created. We have the leper in Matthew chapter 8, verse 2, who after he is healed, he comes up and he worships Jesus Christ. And you know what's amazing? Jesus took the worship. He didn't say, no, 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 stop. You need to worship the Father alone. No, many times in the New Testament, Jesus took the worship. Why? Because he is God. He's the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And so he's rich in worship in that his creation worships him. Jesus is God eternal and he has riches forever. Psalm 16, 11, in, the pre in his presence is fullness of joy. The most intense, complete 
joy that's in the universe is with him and those pleasures last forevermore. So incredible joy forever and ever and ever are with the Lord. He has a supernatural glory. He has eternal attributes. He possesses all power. He's one with the Father. And in him all deity exists in bodily form. And I think the greatest riches that Jesus has is his relational love within the Trinity, between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is an eternal love relationship there between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you know, as well as I do, that the most important things in life are not material things, but relationships with people. And by the way, we are all eternal here. Every one of us is going to live for eternity either with God or separated from God. And relationships are very, very important to God because God is a relational God. The reason why he opened up or sent his son down to earth was so that we could join in through salvation into that relationship that exists between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do not become gods, but somehow we get to participate in having a close personal relationship, which is amazing. Christ is rich. But the Bible says here, for your sakes, he became poor. For your sake. Why for our sake? And the idea there is on account of you or on your behalf, he became poor. Why? Because Romans 3 says that we are depraved. We are sinners. We are sinners to the core. Our mouths are like an open grave. Our sin is rotten because it's rotten, because it's unholy. God cannot have us in his presence. We are sinners. And it even says in in Psalm 5.5 that God hates all who do iniquity. Not just the iniquity, but those who produce it, which is us as sinners. And we're depraved. And Jesus became poor for our sakes because we desperately needed him to do that because of our depravity. You know, there's a, there's a stench of death with sin. When we're participating in sin, we don't smell it and we don't necessarily understand it in the moment, but there's a stench there. There's a rottenness. There, there is an appallingness to it that God cannot have it in his presence. And I was reminded one time at, at Masters University, at the time it was the college, I had a dear buddy, Stuart Epperson, that thought he would do something funny. And he took a slab of bacon and he put it in an envelope and he hid it in my dorm room. And uh, after about a week, I started smelling this, this odor that uh, eventually, three weeks later, was making my eyes water. It was, it was so bad that, that my roommate started just like, dude, you need to wash your sheets, man. You need to clean your room. Something is just awful here. And we were tearing the room apart trying to find out what is creating this awful stench. And one day after three weeks after Stuart saw us sleeping in the hallway outside our door, he came in and revealed that he had slit, uh, put the envelope between the frame of the bed, which was bolted into the wall, and he found a little gap where it could fit in there that my fingers could never get, nor would I see. But the, the stench and the rottenness of that decomposing flesh, it was a little bit of an echo to the stench of our sin in our lives. And God cannot have it in his presence. Not only is there a stench of of sin and depravity, but we are bankrupt before God. 
Every one of us is born in sin. We are born indebted to God. We are debtors to God. We are guilty and we are under his wrath, the Bible says. In Romans chapter 5, uh, Paul says that we are helpless in that while we were yet helpless. And the idea there is powerless. We have no ability on our own to save ourselves and to get us out of the muck and mire of our sin. We're powerless to do that. And then it says that we're also sinners, that we miss the mark of God's holiness, a mark that we can never attain on our own. And then it says in Romans 5 that we are enemies of God in our sin. We are enemies of God. And yet... Even though your and my sin created a debt worthy of hell that we could never pay back, Christ descended from riches to poverty so that we sinners might ascend from our poverty and become rich. It's incredible. And now I want to look at point number two, the depths of his poverty. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. How did Jesus Christ, the owner and creator of the universe, become poor? What is Paul talking about? Well, you need to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. This is a famous text describing the incarnation of Christ when he became a man. It's also called the kenosis, where the God-man... Christ, as God, took on human flesh. Starting in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of sinful Men, verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So if we want to think about Christ's poverty in terms of levels, the first level was when he became a man. When the God, second person of the Trinity, took on flesh, he became a man. That was his first entrance into poverty, if you will. He was born of a poor family. His mother was Mary, born in a poor stable, right? He was a poor dependent baby, needed to be held, needed to be fed, needed to be cared for. He was completely helpless. And his mother Mary is holding him, the very one who holds the universe together. He comes and becomes a man and becomes completely, totally dependent on a poor young mother, his mother Mary. And by becoming a man, Jesus Christ subjected himself to the curse. He subjected himself to the results of our sin, yet he never sinned. Isaiah 53 says he became a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus Christ became a man and suffered. And one of the reasons why he suffered was so he, he could understand and know our pain. He could become our high priest. And by the way, let me encourage you who have gone through difficulty and hard times. Many times the Lord will allow us to enter into trials so that in time we will be able to minister and care for others who enter the same type of trials. I'm reminded of my precious wife, Jill. She lost a sibling, a sister, 
Her sister was 16 years old and, and died of childhood leukemia. And it was a very, very difficult time for their family. I did not know them at that point yet. And I know that her father has told me he, he was bankrupt. It was so, so, so difficult because she was cured, but then she fell out of remission. And, and Rod, her older brother, had to uh, do the bone marrow transplant. And then ultimately she still died. She still passed away. Now, my wife can minister to others who have lost a child or a sibling because she's gone through that. She knows it intimately, the pain of that. And often, though, we are in the middle of trials. We don't understand why God is allowing this. But ultimately, it's probably going to be one of the reasons is that you can minister to others in the body and care for them and help them because you yourself have gone through it as well. After our second child, we miscarried. I have a child in heaven. And Jill and I can now minister to those who've lost a child uh, because we've gone through that. And so there's, there's something about this idea of participating in suffering, though we don't choose to do it, but there can be benefits from it in benefiting others. And we see Christ entering into becoming a man and entering into suffering for our behalf. In the book, The Reason for God, the author states this, people love to ask, why if God's a loving God and he's in control, would he allow evil, pain, and suffering? And though the Bible doesn't ultimately tell us, we know this to be true. He is not a God who is indifferent to it. He's not a God who doesn't care. In fact, our God entered into it when he became a man and suffered on our behalf. Therefore, he could be our faithful high priest. And that's the first level of poverty. He became a man. The second level, if you will, is that he died on the cross. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. His poverty was the ultimate physical poverty in that he lost his life. It was taken. He was tortured. He was spit upon. He was mocked. He was nailed. He had the crown of thorns put on his head. He had the sword sh shoved into his side. It was life offered and life taken. Jesus Christ entered into the ultimate physical poverty when he died. And somehow, I would think this would be the the lowest level or the worst level of poverty, and that is he was cut off from his father on the cross, which would be the ultimate spiritual poverty that Christ endured. Somehow, some way, he was cut off and forsaken by his father. Now, I want to tackle this little section here on verse 7 with the word emptied. What is meant by the fact that Jesus emptied himself? Well, I'm just going to rapid fire some thoughts to you here. Quickly, he temporarily divested himself of his divine glory. He willingly forsook the worship of saints and angels and instead was hated, spit upon, beaten, and murdered. Second thought, he emptied himself of his independent divine authority. That is, when he was a man, he said this in John 5.30, I can do nothing of my own initiative. He was led by the Holy Spirit as a man. While he was alive. 
Three, he emptied himself of the voluntary exercise of some of his divine attributes, though not the essence of his deity. He emptied himself of the voluntary exercise of some of his divine attributes, but he did not change the essence of his deity. He did not stop being omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. He just chose not to exercise the full extent of these attributes. Lest you fall into danger on this little text, I have this treatise I want to read to you. The danger comes when it is concluded that in the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity took on human nature and in so doing gave up or lost some of his divine attributes such that Jesus Jesus was not fully divine. The doctrine of the two natures of Christ known as the hypostatic union maintains that Jesus possessed a full undiminished human nature and a full undiminished divine nature, fully God, fully man which were not combined or confused into some new nature, but were added to each other forever in the person of Jesus Christ. The question regarding the kenosis comes to this. What does it mean when the scripture says he emptied himself? Did Jesus cease to be God during his earthly ministry? Certainly not. For deity cannot stop being deity or he would never have been true deity to begin with. Rather, the emptying is the satisfactory is satisfactorily explained in the subsequent words of the verse. Taking note of the two participles which are grammatic, which grammatically modify and explain the verb. He emptied himself, how? By taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of sinful men. This emptying, in fact, was done as the man Jesus Christ and neither of these ideas necessitates or implies the giving up of divine attributes. So Christianity maintains that Jesus did not empty himself of any of his divinity in the incarnation, although it is true that his divine attributes were veiled. When the kenosis theory concludes that Jesus is or was less than God, as has been in the past regarded, it is regarded as heresy. Here's the point. He was fully God, fully man, 100%, 100% God, 100% man, and he willingly humbled himself and became poor on your behalf, on your behalf. He emptied himself of eternal riches. He gave up heaven's riches and forsook them. The adoration, the worship that ensued, and the service of angels He emptied himself of his unique, intimate, face-to-face relationship with his heavenly father. Somehow, on the cross, he was forsaken. He was cut off and separated. He cried out in Matthew 27, verse 48, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Trinitarian, eternal, agape love relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit was somehow altered Somehow Jesus endured an eternal weight of wrath, of God's wrath on our behalf. Jesus was cut off for you and for me. Jesus drank the cup of wrath and punishment for you and for me. One author says this, how can one man, this is a deep thought, how can one man in a matter of hours drain the cup of God's wrath that would have taken an eternity being poured out on me. How could one man in a matter of hours drain the cup of God's wrath that would have, been, would have taken an eternity 
to be poured out on me. Jesus became poor so that you and I could become rich. Jesus took what he did not deserve so that we could get what we did not deserve. We get his riches, his grace, his love, his forgiveness, his joy. Jesus became poor so that we could become rich. Jesus met our greatest spiritual need. And that leads us to our last point. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. We get to inherit all of Christ's riches. What are those? Rapid fire again. Salvation from sin. Salvation from hell. We get to participate in the resurrection. We get new bodies. We get a new heaven, a participate in a new heaven and a new earth. We receive eternal life. We receive the eternal weight of glory. We will be in a place where there, there will be no more tears, pain, suffering, and sorrow. And we will be in a place where there will be many mansions. And through his poverty, personally, each one of us, we receive uh, all things pertain to life and godliness. We become partakers of divine nature in Christ. We receive the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit. We receive the forgiveness of sins and freedom from guilt. We receive love, joy, and peace and happiness that only belongs to the Lord. We are therefore now under no condemnation for we've been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ and we receive his righteousness. We have victory over sin now. And we can have a personal relationship with our creator. Those of you who are far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have received so much in the Lord Jesus Christ because he became poor on our behalf. We became poor. Let me just close with uh, a couple thoughts. Last but not least, the most important aspect. How does this affect and apply to me this amazing verse that Christ emptied himself and became poor so that I could be saved. Number one, it should lead to 24-7 worship for the Christian. We should be so moved with great joy and great thankfulness that we do not complain, we do not grumble, but we just live in a perpetual state of thanksgiving for what Jesus has done for us. And in that, we worship the Lord when we do that. I want that from my heart. I want to be like the Macedonian church that is so moved by the grace and love of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the gospel that they live in, with joy and with happiness. I pray that for our church, that we are so enthralled with the work that Jesus did for us on our behalf that we become just thankful, thankful worshipers of the Lord. Number two, like Paul preached the gospel to Christians, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves all day long. And one of the ways you can start doing that is memorize this verse. Remember the depths of Christ's poverty so that we could be enriched in his grace and love. Three, keep the gospel central to your life. If you get asked to do a difficult task here at the church, just go back to the gospel and say, wow, man, Jesus did that for me. I can go do that. I can go serve in such a way that when I do that service, I can worship God in it 
right in the middle of it, I can worship the Lord by serving him ultimately, whatever is asked of you. If you are a leader of a ministry, like I am in student ministries, maybe it's mercy ministry, maybe it's, it's the visitor's ministry, whatever it might be, you need to go back and make sure that the gospel is central in it. In it. That we have the flavors of the gospel with grace and mercy and forgiveness, all as a part of what we do in our service. Four, let the gospel be your very joy and strength as you serve him. Let the gospel be your joy. All day long, remembering the love of Christ on our behalf. And then five, proclaim the good news that Jesus became poor so we could be rich, we who are sinners. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, don't die in your sins. You will be eternally destitute. You will be an eternal debtor to God. And you will face the punishment and his wrath for eternity for your sins. Why would you do that when the provision has been made through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for you? So I call you to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this verse. Thank you for the text. Couldn't really do justice to the context, which is really amazing, and the grace that you bestowed on the Macedonian churches. And the outflow of that was overflowing joy, overflowing generosity, Lord, I pray that for us as a church that we would overflow with the joy of the, what you've done for us, Lord. Thank you that you became poor for us to the point of dying on the cross and taking the wrath that we deserved. And then, Lord, you rose again from the dead and we will rise again. Thank you so much for the provision that you've made. We love you and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.